thought it would be. It's nice. It's good to be here this morning, not only uh, back at church, um, but in the pulpit for the first time on a Sunday morning. If you don't know me, I'm Forrest Brown. I mainly serve with the youth and on the worship team. And so this is a little bit weird. Normally I'm sitting down right about now. Uh, Now I'm standing up. So it's a little bit of adjustment. Uh, And that hasn't been the only adjustment that I've had the past couple days. We just brought home our first child. And so that's been a little bit of a learning curve. So I'm really excited to be back at church and to be here this morning. Thanks to all the family and friends who uh, came this morning. Um, I appreciate you all coming to see me preach, but what I really hope engages you this morning is God's word. And also thanks to Johnny and Corey for entrusting me with this this task this morning. Um, It truly is a privilege and an honor and a weighty task, and hopefully I can live up to that. And so my prayer is that God would use our time this morning to challenge us and encourage us so that we might be more conformed to the image of his precious son and become people more able to do his precious work. And so I would invite you all to turn with me to Psalm 32. And as you're finding your place there this morning, I want to ask you this question. Out of all the things that God has blessed you with, what are you most thankful for? Out of all the things that God has blessed you with, what are you most thankful for? You thinking about that? You have that question in the back of your head? Well, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll invite you guys to read this, this text with us. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word, and thank you for your forgiveness. It is a pleasure and the honor to be adopted into your family. And the fact of the matter is, none of us would be here unless we have received the forgiveness of the Lord. That is what unites us and brings us together. And so as we think about that this morning, help us to be encouraged and emboldened by the fact that you have forgiven us of our sins. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, I invite you all to stand with me for the reading of Psalm 32. And think about that question and ask yourself, how would David answer the question of what is, what is he most thankful for? What blessings is he most thankful for? Beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hands was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You may be seated. So as you were listening to that psalm, what do you think that David would say is the blessing that he's most thankful for? My task this morning is very simple, and it is to convince you that there is no higher blessing than the forgiveness of our sins. What David shows in this psalm is that the blessing of forgiveness can be obtained through humble confession. And he does this by arranging the psalm into six different units. You can actually see this in your text as it's broken up into six different units. In verses 1 and 2, David introduces us to this supreme blessing. In verses 3 and 4, he describes to us life without God's forgiveness as he experiences conviction. In verse 5, David details his confession of sin. In verses 6 and 7, David declares his deliverance to all people and invites them to receive that deliverance as well. In verses 8 and 9, David instructs others on how they might now live. And lastly, in verses 10 and 11, we read about the joy of those who are forgiven. And so we could easily break up the text like this. Verses 1 and 2, the blessing of forgiveness. Verses 3 and 4, conviction. Verse 5, confession. Verses 6 and 7, deliverance. Verses 8 and 9, instruction. And verses 10 through 11, the joy of forgiveness. And if you you didn't get all that, that's okay. I'm just giving you a bird's eye view because we're about to go into into the depths of it. And so let's begin. Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What's interesting about this verse is that rather than focusing on what the blessed man does, he focuses on what the blessed man experiences. And I think that David does this in order to emphasize the fact that there is no higher blessing than the forgiveness of our sin. And he does this using this, this fancy literary device. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's called repetition. And so he says the same thing three times in three different ways, right? He says, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, the Lord, whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's just three different ways of saying the same thing, right? But the question that we have to ask is, what do we need to be forgiven of? He gives three words, transgressions, sins, and iniquities. Transgressions, sins, and iniquities. The difference between these three words may be a little hard to understand because obviously there's some overlap between them. But in my research, sin is failing to follow God's commandments. Iniquity is purposely distorting God's commandments while transgression is a complete rebellion against God and his personhood. Again, we, don't, we could get caught up in definitions, but the point of the matter is that he's trying to give an exhaustive summary of sin. And so if you're not quite sure what fits into that category of sin, well, Paul in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 gives us some of these things. He says that the works of the flesh, which is just another fancy way of saying sin, are evidence in sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Similarly, Jesus also gives us another list of what can fit into the small category of sin in Matthew 18.9, where he says that evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander defile a person. So, the reason I'm giving you those two small lists is because in this text, David doesn't give you a particular sin. But the reason he does that is so that it can address every single sin. So whatever sin that you're struggling with this morning, that's the sin that you need to insert into this text. There is no greater danger to you than sin. And not sin in general, but your own personal sin. You see, often when we hear texts like this about sin and conviction, we have the tendency to think, well, at least I'm not as bad as the other guy. At least I'm not this other guy who struggles with that sin. But when we do that, we put ourselves in the position of the Pharisee that we read about earlier in Luke uh, chapter 18, 9 through 14. And that type of attitude is clearly not pleasing to God. So if you're thinking this morning, you know, someone else needs to hear this message about sin and conviction. Well, let me just tell you that the number one person who needs to hear a message about sin and conviction is you if you're you. And it's me if you're me. Because when we stand before God in judgment, he's not going to ask us about our siblings' anger issues or our boss's unethical practices or our children's behavior. No, your sin is the most dangerous thing to you because your sin is the only thing that separates you from God and secures your place in hell. And while Christ does tell us to remove the speck out of our brother's and sister's eyes, he first tells us to remove it out of our own. And so... Let us do ourselves a favor this morning and consider where we stand when we read a text like this. Don't think of other people, but think of yourself. Even as I was writing this, I realized that there's some sins that I need to confess. It's so easy to think of other people. But here's the hope of the message this morning. If you fall short of what God demands for you, if you have come to realize that you have changed God's commandments so it's more palatable to your lifestyle, if you rebel against God's authority as the ruler of your life, then you are in need of God's forgiveness, which means you have a shot at this great blessing. The purpose of this threefold description of sin is to tell you and emphasize the greatness of this blessing by showing you the greatness of your need. But before we move past verse one and two, there's even more to these verses. Doesn't it sound a little bit familiar? The Lord who's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I think we read that a little bit earlier in the service, right? Exodus 34, six says, The Lord tells Moses who he is when he states that he's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see, what David is doing by alluding to that text is showing us that there's no higher blessing than forgiveness because when you experience the forgiveness of the Lord, you are experiencing his very character. 
It's the difference between saying, I've heard that Harold Tourget makes incredible desserts versus I know that Harold makes incredible desserts because I've tasted them myself. <laughs> Have you known the Lord's grace? Have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins? Then you are blessed for you know God. This is who the blessed man is. And the one who experiences the mercy and grace of the Lord is the one who has no deceit in his mouth. That doesn't mean that he's, he doesn't tell lies. What it means is that he is transparent and forthcoming about his sin. This is who the blessed man is. And David puts this statement at the beginning of the psalm and beautiful poetry alluding to multiple texts to show you how good this blessing is. Because what follows is an example of what someone looks like when they don't have the Lord's forgiveness. In verses three and four, we see David's conviction as he shows us his personal experience living under the condemnation of sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Now there's, there's a little bit of debate about what exactly David is experiencing. Is, are these physical effects? Are these spiritual effects? And in my mind, there's no question that it's both. Some people like to divide these things and say that they're not related, but we all know what this is actually like. It's the friend who has something weighing on them so heavily that they, they kind of slouch when they walk. It's the person who's so anxious that you hear their, their feet bouncing across the room, right? Our emotional lives are deeply tied to our physical responses, and what the psalmist is saying is that our spiritual lives are tied to that as well. And this is why I think we get so much wrong about what it means to be blessed. Because we like to look to the physical gifts uh, to, to mean that's, that's what blessing is. But being blessed is about so much more than just material objects. It's about so much more than just the food or the shelter or the um, house that we have. Not to say that those things aren't blessings, but being blessed is so much more than that. I mean, think about what the Bible says in Psalm 1 about the blessed man. In all things he does, he prospers. You see, the blessed man is one whose physical, emotional, mental, spiritual life is marked by flourishing because they find satisfaction in who God is. And just as being blessed is about so much more than just being happy, not being blessed is about so much more than just being sad. I mean, look at it. David's bones wasted away and his groaning was continual. You know what it's like to have that type of emotion or that spiritual um, situation? Uh, it's, like, it's like you felt that kind of grief where you've cried for hours and hours and no amount of tissues can stop the flood of your tears. And after two or three boxes, you just feel tired. David gives us another image of this emotion. He says it's like your strength being dried up by the heat of the summer. It's like you leave an apple outside in the month of June and you return to it a few days later. It's just 
mush. He is completely and utterly undone. And we have to ask the question, what, what's causing this response? What is it that's making David so, uh, so angst, like angsty and, and so much turmoil? It's not over some insult that someone gave him. It's not over a hard day of work. It's not over a child who doesn't act as we expect. But it's over his silence. It's when David is silent that he experiences this grief. It's his guilt of sin that pushes him to utter despair. And we hardly feel this way about our sin. We hardly feel the weight and sorrow that we should when we think about our sin. When you're made aware of your sin, whether someone brings it to you or through self-realization, what's your response? Do you sit in silence and pretend that it's not true? Do you acknowledge that it's wrong but quickly gloss over it by continuing to act in that sin? Do you say that it's wrong for other people, but for some reason it's not wrong for you? Or do you grieve your sin? And I, I want to acknowledge that it's, it's definitely a dangerous place. It's a dangerous position to stay in that grieving position. But at the same time, I think it's equally dangerous to not start there. While we might all display this type of grief differently, if we don't have remorse for our sins, if we're not sorrowful about our sin, if we don't feel guilty about our sin, that's a big issue. And I actually think this is one of Satan's chief tactics when he is trying to pull away people from God. Bunyan, John Bunyan, puts it like this in his excellent work, The Jerusalem Center Saved. The design of Satan is to tell the presumptuous that the presuming on mercy is good, but to persuade the believer that his believing is impudent. His goal is to either make you think you have forgiveness when you don't, or make you think you don't have forgiveness when you do. And some of us don't have forgiveness because we don't see our need for it. We've heard that God is merciful, and we think that we just have it, but we just don't see our need for it, so we don't go to him for it. Jesus said it himself. He came for the sinners, not the righteous. So if you don't see the weight or the need for your deliverance from sin, if you don't see yourself as a sinner, then Jesus did not come for you. And this is not just true of when we first come to Christ. This is true for every sin that we deal with following. You need Jesus for your anger, Jesus for your lust, Jesus for your greed. And this is why it's so important to start with grieving our sin and seeing our need, because that means that we'll go to our Savior. Now, this misery doesn't just stem from David's conscience alone. Look with me at the beginning of of verse four, where it says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. You see, the conscience finds its origin in God, and as a result, so does David's misery. 
The hand of God is the source of David's weakness. It is because we have a God who punishes those who conceal their sins that David actually experiences these effects. And I want to be very careful when I state that. Because that is not to say that all suffering is a result of sin. The book of Job is a helpful reminder there. But at the same time, God does punish sinners for their sin. And sometimes they see the effects of it. So when God doesn't punish you for the sins that you've committed, uh, that's him being merciful. And his mercy should lead you to repentance. But when we experience the negative consequences of our sin, when we experience the negative consequences of going against the blessed way that God promotes, we can't say that we shouldn't have expected it. You see, the reason our forgiveness is so great is because our situation is so dire. And yet, God's purposes for conviction is multi-layered. You see, this conviction isn't only to punish evil, but it is also to push David to confess his sins. You see, David's threefold statement of what it means to be blessed is matched by a threefold statement of confession. And this shows us that as big as there is a focus on forgiveness, there is an equal emphasis on confession and repentance. Notice how David responds to his guilt and the Lord's conviction. He says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. First, he acknowledges his sin before the Lord. David admits or he accepts the fact that he has sinned before God. And, and David's not telling God something like it's new. God already knows that David has sinned. What this verse is emphasizing is that David is letting the Lord know. He's emphasizing his realization of what he's done. David is recognizing what he has done wrong, and he is telling the Lord, I realize this. Next, David says, I did not cover my iniquity. David doesn't try to hide anything from the Lord, unlike us when we confess our sin. Normally, we go to God and we want to say, well, you know, I did this, but it wasn't that bad because, you know, this person egged me on. <laughs> no, David doesn't try to hide anything from the Lord. And this, this word choice, um, I did not cover my iniquity, is super interesting. And the reason it's so interesting is because it refers back to the second line in verse 1. Remember, blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And now we see that I did not cover my iniquity. What David's kind of doing with these words is he's saying, the blessed man whose sin is covered by God is the humble man who doesn't cover his sin before God. Andrew Rogers puts it like this, and I think he sums this up excellently. He says, if you cover up your sin, God won't. If you don't cover up your sin, God will. And lastly, David recognizes he lays his sin bare before God. And he agrees with God that this is wrong. 
And what does the Lord do? And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you hear the relief in David's word? The peace in David's heart? The power of confession? You know, we've been talking, I don't know, 25 minutes about how great forgiveness is, how much we are in need of it. And the question that remains is, how do we get this forgiveness? And the answer is to confess your sins. You need to cry out to God and beat your chest and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. When Joshua, which is the name of my son, when he moves and fidgets and grunts at night, that can be for a variety of reasons. He could just be readjusting. He could be pooping. Or as Stephanie says, it could just be because he hates us. <laughs> We're still working on the fifth commandment. But because of that, when Joshua grunts, we have the tendency to just ignore it. And the reason that we ignore it is because we know that there are other times that when he needs us, that he will shout and scream and he will let us know. When you hear a child cry, especially your own, what happens in your heart is that it yearns to fix whatever issue they are going through. Because you know that they know that they can't do anything for themselves. His little cries brings out our compassion, and it is the same way with our compassionate God. So when we tell him that we recognize and feel the weight and need of our sin, God's heart is extended towards our pitiful situation, and he deals kindly with us. Like a small little child, all you need to do is cry. But this is still difficult for some of us. Remember that Bunyan quote I mentioned earlier, Satan's design is to persuade believers that his believing is impudent, that they're being bold or brazen with God. In other words, Satan's trying to convince you that your sin is too great for God's mercy. And if that's your struggle today, I just want you to see the bottom of, of verse 5 where it says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or, in other words, in a, another Bunyan quote, he says this, the Lord has mercy in his bank. And I, I love that phrase for so many reasons. And one of the reasons I love this phrase is because there's an image that just kind of comes to my mind where a sinner enters into the Lord's bank and he walks up to the teller and he says, I've heard that the master of this bank is gracious and merciful and freely gives out mercy. How much can I have? And the teller just looks at him and he gives him a smile and he says, how much do you need? But that's not good enough for this sinner. He says, well, once was it when I was a child, I got, I got quite angry. I need mercy for that. And the teller just reminds him, there is mercy for that. Well, 
I've also done a bit of stealing. I need mercy for that as well. And the teller reminds him again, there is mercy for that. And he says, oh, but I've, I've committed much more heinous sins than this. I've even committed murder. And the teller looks at him and he says, there is mercy for that. Have you not heard the Lord has mercy in his bank and your sins can never exhaust his supply? If, you're, if you see your sins and if you are weary of them, then the Lord invites you to confess your sins and to experience forgiveness. Satan would have you believe that your deepest, darkest sin is a burden on your back, that your sin cannot be overcome by God's mercy. But the depths of your sin simply mean you have the biggest need and the biggest claim on Christ's mercy. So be ashamed of your sin, but don't be ashamed to admit your sin because at the end of your confession lies forgiveness. And in the midst of your weakness, he supplies strength. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David's meditation and experience of the Lord's forgiveness causes him to invite everyone else to experience it as well. God's invitation is to everyone. If you're not a Christian, then this invitation is to you. This is an invitation for you to have your sins forgiven. This is an invitation for you to have newness of life. And if you are a Christian, then this is an invitation for you to experience forgiveness over whatever sin that you are struggling with. Offer prayer to God. Ask him to strengthen you and help you and remove the sin away from you. And David encourages his readers to do this by giving him this image. It's as if he's saying, there is a day coming where there will be a large rush of waters. And if you don't offer prayer to God, you'll be swept underneath it. Now this image would certainly call to mind the image of the judgment and the flood during the days of Noah. You see, up until this point, we've seen sin as, turn, as um, composing of internal guilt and turmoil, but I think this verse extends the consequences of sin to God's wrath and punishment. God's mercy extends to all people and all places, and it covers over all sins, but it is not offered for all time. Even if we look at the second half of verse six, at, the, at a time when you may be found, that implies there's a time when you won't be found. There is a day when it is too late. And so there's an urgency to this message. And every day you delay thinking about your sin, you take one of the biggest gambles in your entire life because tomorrow is not promised. But here's the good news. It's not too late. You see, now 
is the time when God may be found. It's not over until you see Christ glorified, whether in your death or in him coming on the clouds. So so don't let this warning stop you from seeing God's mercy displayed uh, in his patience. This is the time when he may be found. And Charnock says it like this. Stephen Charnock, that is. God often gives warnings of judgment that he might not pour out his wrath. He takes time to sharpen his sword that men may turn themselves from the edge of it. He roars like a lion that men by hearing his voice may shelter themselves by being torn by his wrath. Who can charge God with an eagerness to revenge who sends so many heralds and so often before he strikes that he might be prevented from striking? You see, God is just, but he uses his warnings to call sinners to repentance. God in his kindness every day is giving all of us the chance to come to him for forgiveness. And those who come to him will experience deliverance. Look with me at verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Once again, that threefold declaration, that threefold repetition to show you how good this deliverance is. Where does David find refuge from the Lord's conviction and wrath? Where does David run to when the great waters surround him? He goes to the Lord himself. The Lord hides him and preserves him. God's refuge protects David from God's judgment. And not only is David upheld and preserved, but he is surrounded by shouts of deliverance probably by the other ones who have been saved alongside with him. You see, we experience deliverance when we confess our sins. David is saved both from internal guilt and external judgment by taking refuge in God. Is this not simply the gospel that we believe in? That in Christ, if we believe in his work that God is faithful to forgive us as of our sins, as we are hidden in Christ and given Christ's righteousness. I don't understand how people say that the gospel is not in the Old Testament. It's right there. Those who offer prayer to God will be protected from the flood, while those who don't will be swept away. You see, forgiveness, once again, is the greatest blessing because it secures for us the greatest refuge. As verses 6 and 7 extend the scope of judgment and salvation, verses 8 and 9 extends the scope of confession. You see, confession is not merely an admission of sin, but also consists of turning to follow the Lord's instruction. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Once again, as with some Psalms, there's some 
debate about who exactly is speaking in verse 8. Some propose that it's David who's speaking and continuing to instruct others. Others propose that it's the Lord speaking and instructing David. Because normally in the Psalms, if someone's teaching, it's normally the Lord who's doing the teaching. And honestly, there's, there's a bit of ambiguity about who exactly is speaking. But I don't think these two views are naturally opposed to one another. Because David, who is declaring words of hope out to sinners in need of mercy, he first was a student of the Lord. The, lur- the, lurd. <laughs> the Lord first instructs and teaches and counsels. And literally in our text, he also convicts before David goes and instructs others. You see, every good teacher of the word is first and foremost a good student of the Lord's. This is incredible news for us because it shows us that as deep as the depth of your sin and as difficult as it is to follow the steps of repentance, God's mercy is big enough that he can forgive you of your sins and his grace is good enough that he will instruct you on how to overcome it. He will instruct you. He will teach you. He will counsel you. And he'll do it well enough so like David, you'll be able to instruct others as well. Are you experiencing the Lord's conviction, but you're not sure what to do next? Well, open his word and sit under his instruction. Are you experiencing continual sin that you just can't come over? open his word, and listen to his instruction. Furthermore, find yourself older, wiser, more mature men like David who have wrestled and struggled with their sin and can help you walk through it. I suggest the elders. There's, there's that. David continues by explaining this, uh, this image to us uh, by showing us the image of one who sincerely seeks after the Lord. And he does this through this image of an unruly horse. He says, be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which might be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. If you don't know what a bit and a bridle is, it's this little piece of metal that goes inside of a horse's mouth that the rider can pull on its reins. And the reason that it does that is because that bit causes pressure in its mouth, and it pulls up the horse's head to whatever direction that it needs to go. And so the image that David is creating is a horse that literally won't stay near you unless you pull on its bit. And he's saying, you shouldn't be like that. You should not need discipline in order to confess your sins. Now, you may need godly counsel, but confession of sin should not be like the pulling of teeth. Confession should not be coerced. You should not need discipline in order to follow the Lord's instruction. Rather, if you have experienced God's forgiveness and you have been born again, then you have been given new desires. Your heart should naturally long to be in one accord with the Lord. You're not a horse. You're not a mule. Rather, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. If you don't have these desires, if you're more like a horse when it comes to following after God's instruction, then odds are you're in need of God's salvation. 
And any Christian in this room would be happy to talk to you more about what that means. But ask yourself that question. You see, God's grace does not only just guide us, but it also transforms us so that we want to please and follow after him. The psalm ends with a declaration of joy experienced by the one who trusts in the Lord. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, are you upright in heart. The one who confesses sin, who pursues God, experiences forgiveness and deliverance. That is the person who has true joy. Notice how the blessings that were described in verse 1 and 2 are matched by the joy that is found at the end of the psalm. This joy is contrasted against the wicked who experience sorrow due to their unresolved guilt and God's judgment. But the one who is forgiven trusts in the Lord, and as a result, God's steadfast love surrounds him. The grief that was once experienced in their sin is eclipsed by the joy of forgiveness. Oftentimes, we think of this as the smallest of blessings, not realizing that it secures for us everything. God's forgiveness offered through the work of Jesus Christ is the foundation for every good gift that God gives you. And if you don't believe me, you don't have to. Just look at Romans 8, 32, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with all things, graciously give us all things? Since God gave us his only son, his prized possession, his deepest joy, then we can stand to reason that he won't hesitate to give us anything else. The forgiveness of the Lord is what allows us to be made right with God. It's what allows us to be saved from our sin. It's what allows us to be adopted into his family. The ones who have sinned are now called righteous and upright in heart. How is this so? How can it be? They are made righteous through their confession of sin. Church, we have a reason to be glad in the Lord. We have a reason to sing for joy. We have a reason to shout and rejoice. And that's because we have the greatest blessing, and that is the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray.